Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Pasha S. Fandieri. Before we dive in, I want to ask you all a real quick favor. Would you mind please taking an extra 30 seconds to head over to iTunes and rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with that review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Starting his career in residential real estate back in 2011, uh, flipping homes that he found at auctions. Pasha has since been involved in over $250 million worth of real estate transactions across multiple asset types. These include residential homes, boutique motels, the purchasing and management of large multifamily properties, and he is now solely focused on the mobile home community sector, which is our favorite, through his firm, Evoke Capital. Pasha, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure to be on. I'm excited. Yeah, it was awesome, you know, running into you at the Reconvene conference a few weeks ago in Santa Monica and being able to connect over dinner. So it was awesome meeting you. It was a pleasure getting to know you too. There's so many similarities in what we do. And so it was kind of eerily so similar. It's awesome. So I just really enjoyed getting to know you, bouncing ideas off of each other. Um, And it was just a great convention. So yeah, happy to be on, happy to talk about it, happy to dive deep into whatever you bring my way. Awesome, dude. Would you mind starting out by telling us a little about your story and what inspired you to get started in mobile home park investing? Sure. My journey is a little, uh, not a little, it's definitely non-traditional. So after high school, I went to a community college for one one semester and I just, I just realized this was not for me. You know, right around that time after I had dropped out, my brother had won a really big poker tournament. This is kind of like 2003, 2004 era where poker was getting really big. I said, well, if he could do it, I could do it. And I just started playing poker. I mean, I was 19 years old and I started doing really well. And that career continued until about 25, 26, when I really realized I don't like the lifestyle. I don't enjoy it. It's not going to be like indicative of of like a good family life. So I gave up poker and really kind of just learned everything that I could about real estate. Went and interned for three months for free with a buddy of mine at his company based out of LA. And I just learned the real estate game. And so, you know, really when I talk about taking a few steps back in terms of pay, I did that. I just, I went through the, through it. And so then I went back to Vegas, flipped my first house. I made $3,000 net making, you know, some mistakes along the way. It was actually a mobile home that I flipped in a community. So it's kind of full circle at this point. I just, I got the bug and you have to understand, you know, back then I I was bluffing five figures in in one hand and I made 3k and I was like, this is it. I just realized that this is the game for me. And I started flipping a really, a lot of homes in Vegas. We, me and my wife moved to Los Angeles. I flipped one home. There's this thing in poker called game selection. I want to get back to it. It's, it's really identifying better tables and better poker games to play. And I flipped my first home in, in LA and I really realized this wasn't this wasn't really like, there's not a ton of potential here. It's I'm a small fish in a big pond. And I so right in my area that I was with, which was in a path of progression, there was a lot of land on hillside available. 
And I really just scrounged up all the money that I could and bought all the land that I could on the cheap and started developing on Hillside, even though I've never developed before there. Just I saw the opportunity, I attacked it. Worked out really well for me, thank God. And after doing that for close to six years, I realized again, this I don't like this development game. Jumped into multifamily for more passive income. Really quickly realized again <laughs> the game selection. Multifamily was so saturated, cap rates have really compressed. Let me go where there's more of a niched product, more conducive to my lifestyle that I want to build, which is passive income, which is the velocity of money. Um, and when there's more stigma around something that's typically sometimes a good thing to get into if you do the research. And that's what I did. So I jumped from multifamily into mobile home parks. And I just realized this is a no-brainer and I have to, I have to tack it. Additionally, I had a partner who uh, was going to put some money into a deal. And so I, I, in a way, went kicking and screaming. Um, I said, well, let me look at the numbers. It doesn't make sense to me because I'm a multifamily investor. They, they showed me their numbers. I trusted them, got into it, and it worked out really well. It was, it was yielding better than my multifamily deals. And I said, all right, let's do this. And so just now attacking this opportunity. Yeah, that's a long-winded answer. Uh, no, that is, so, that is so awesome. I want to go back to being a professional poker player. So how mm -hmm. long were you doing the, uh, the poker the circuit? I was, I was doing it for anywhere for about almost eight years. So I, I never did the circuit. I, I did do the circuit. I just was never a tournament player. So I would, when I was younger, um, I would, when I was like from 21 to 23, I would travel the world, go play the circuits and tournaments, the cash games, because the cash games were so good back then mm -hmm. uh, during the, around the circuit. But I never really played the tournament. But yeah, I played professionally for close to eight years. That is fantastic. And I'm so curious, you know, like you mentioned game selection, you know, what other tools you've taken from your time, you know, being a professional poker player, uh, you know, what, what other tools have you brought into your investing, your real estate investing, mobile home park investing? You know, that, that's a good question. I'm actually uh, in the middle of writing a book about this top 10 things that I've taken away from poker and really translated into my real estate career. There's a lot. I mean, I, the first thing that popped in my head is poker really has to train you to have your foundation based in education. You have to get better. You always have to be constantly improving to beat your opponents. Secondly, it's long-term thinking. So what, what happens in the short term, it doesn't matter. The variance doesn't matter as long as you made the mathematically correct bet. And you can almost really do that in real estate once you know your numbers down pat is to understand that you have a complete information. Poker is a game of incomplete information. Everyone's trying to lie to you. Everyone's trying to <laughs> bluff you. Everyone's trying to tell you a different story and you have to decide for what the real story is. And in real estate, you essentially can have 95 to 99% of all the information when you're buying a deal with enough education. So education is a foundational piece. Secondly, it's the way... I've trained my brain to think about long-term circumstances. I don't care about short-term results. I care about 10 years from now. Will, will I thank myself 10 years from now? Game selection is a really big one. Reading people is a really big one. But there's a multitude of, of different things that I've taken into my, uh, into my real estate investing that I, I'm going to talk about in the book, which will probably take about eight to nine months. That's so awesome. I want to copy of that for sure. Yeah, no problem. It's such a cool, such a cool uh, starting point. 
would you tell us about your first deal, that first mobile home park you bought and and kind of what the strategy was for that acquisition? Sure. It was just a, essentially a 50 unit uh, um, or 50 lot park. 40 of them were occupied with tenant owned homes, fully occupied. So, and we really identified when I was looking at it, I said, well, comparable to everywhere else, I don't understand how can we make money? Because in multifamily, you compare the rents to other apartment complexes. But in the mobile home park space, because there's such a lack of low income housing, it was completely 100% full. So we had room to grow, right? So the market really is comparable to what the rents are in apartment complexes or a house or something like that. So we definitely had room to grow. It's what my partner taught me about the mobile home park. So it was just an easy, easy property, not much heavy lifting whatsoever, all tenant owned homes, kind of like the ideal scenario. Um, and I just realized I was cash flowing almost what it was around seven, seven and a half percent right off the bat. And I just said, I can't get that in multifamily, right? Like, and to me, I'm a cash flow investor. I love cash flow, right? I believe in the snowball. I believe in the snowball 10 years from now. So that was that was just an awesome, awesome property that we bought. And then it just translated. Then from that, my portfolio and my risk profile has gotten, you know, more as I learned about the mobile home park space. And, you know, those are rare to find deals. So where was that first uh, park located? It was in Alabama. Alabama. And where is your portfolio now? And and maybe you can share a little bit about Mm -hmm. your portfolio, where it's at, what it looks like. Sure. We're in nine different states. I don't remember all of them. We're definitely located uh, mostly uh, in Alabama, in the Huntsville area, Decatur area. And then we have a big portfolio in Texarkana, Texas. We're in we're in uh, Pittsburgh. We're in Watonka, Alabama. We're in Kansas City, Ohio, or Kansas City, uh, Dodge City, Kansas, Ohio. Uh, we're in Arkansas as well, North Carolina. We're we're a little spread out. And how many yeah. lots is that, Pasha? We have a little under or right around 1,400 lots total. 1,400 If you count lots. the apartment awesome. complexes we have, we have a little under 2,000 lots or total units. Wow, that is fantastic. And when when did you buy that first one? How long ago was that? About two and a half years ago. That is just amazing <laughs> velocity, man. Holy yeah, smokes. You. And yeah, tell me about your team. Tell me about like how you're you're getting this deal flow. And sure. you know what that looks like. Sure. So uh, I have wonderful partners that help me with with all of it. I'm more of an investor forward, customer forward. You know, building the business, right? Building the business mm-hmm. in the right way to be able to scale, which is I think really important. I do want to say, you know, it's funny because to me, it doesn't seem like we we grew all that fast. Um, but I do know by measurement, it is quite quickly. But really, at the like, what I really want to stress is that there's an opportunity here. And we, it's going to be gone in five years. Like there's just such yeah. a big sense of urgency. And Andrew, you and I have talked about this is that in five years, operators like ourselves are going to be the only ones, at least the majority selling these parks because they'll be combed over. They'll be ready for their, their debt to, to come up and they're going to be sold. So I really, this is why we, we, we scaled the way we have, right? Because we see a massive opportunity and we want to just capture it as you know. And that's because you're buying from mom and pops, right? That's, that's the opportunity that's, that's the drying opportunity. up. The baby boomers are retiring. And now, you know, groups like us are, are acquiring these, improving them. And you think it'll look similar to the multifamily space where it's like, 
you know, I think it's something like most of the properties over 50 units yeah. are owned, like something like something like 93% are owned by like professional oh, yeah. groups that own more than three properties. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's and and that's what's going to happen here. I mean, because of the few years before COVID and the cap rate compression from the multifamily area, everyone is chasing yield. Everyone is getting into uh, mobile home park space because our IRR numbers are a little bit higher. Our cash flow is a little bit higher. I believe our velocity of money, velocity of money being is how fast can we return all the initial capital back is a little faster in my opinion. So the opportunity is that we're really truly buying underperforming assets from mom and pop sellers right now. And that's where the true absolute opportunity is, in my opinion. And this is why, again, like why we're attacking it, you know, so we have a team of a little bit of under 20 full-time employees. Um, we are vertically integrated. We do not third-party manage our properties. I've, I don't trust many property managers, but we, we always have on-site management at every single one of our parks. We hire a lot of admins that we we help incorporate. We have a regional manager who admin or administrator over there, a director of operations. And then we have one head of uh, operations, which is one of my partners. Then we have our acquisitions team, which is another partner of mine. We have a head of acquisitions underneath him. He's essentially our controller, or we have a controller underneath him. And then my side where I'm investor relations capital. I'm also wearing the hat of CEO to build the business, which is just as important as the business itself. And then I have an assistant underneath me as well, too, for investor relations. Yeah. That is fantastic. And I know at Reconvene, I think we spoke about using uh, VAs, right? Yes. And how you guys have uh, have implemented that. And that's been a, a game changer for you, like it has for us. Would you mind yeah. touching on that a little bit? Sure. You know, I think... Um, I don't know if there's a stigma around VAs, but there are some incredibly highly intelligent people from other countries that are willing to work really, really hard. We specifically only hire from Mexico for a few reasons. A, they understand our culture a little bit better. Secondly, there's sometimes, not always, uh, tenant forward. So they do speak to tenants if there are some issues over uh, after hours. And so we want them to be able to have that conversation with them. They're on the same time zone and they just really, really work hard and really, really work to impress. So we've been, we utilize admins to really do a lot of our back ends to try to take as much responsibility away from our park managers who then can just focus on the really important things, right? Making sure that the park looks clean, making sure that it's up to our standards, making sure being our eyes and ears and not bogged down with medial work. That's not necessary. So we absolutely use VAs. We love it. We will continue to do so. That's fantastic. Yeah, we've had a similar experience. Right. How has your mobile home park investing strategy changed? I mean, it's only been two and a half years, but you know, has anything changed based on your approach and based on your experience? And and maybe like, does the ideal park for your funds now, you know, look a different way than it did, you know, a couple of years ago? No, the ideal park is still the ideal park. High cash flowing, bad mom and pop sellers. The th the biggest thing that has changed for us is. Um, at first, we weren't really tar touch any park-owned homes, um, at least at, at like a 20% ratio. We're now okay with certain park-owned homes. Like the, the last two parks that we closed on, they were all 2,000 models and above. They mm. were mostly park-owned homes. It was in the same market that we owned. And because of our systems and because of our sales team, we feel very comfortable turning them over to RTOs. 
that alongside with our infill play infill just i'm sure everyone knows it's just an empty land you want to bring in the mobile home we've gotten a little bit more comfortable just because we've gotten a better reworking relationship with true homes and how fast we can get homes in and plus buying property or buying homes out like just third party and bringing them into our homes or communities that's also been something but still at the end of the day we're very conservative we we're not an infill type operator like that's not our bread and butter which i know a lot of good operators make a lot of money from that but that's not our bread and butter we go after badly operated parks i think andrew and you know are very similar in what we look for infill is just part of the game we're okay with taking a little bit more of headache up front um, and brain damage up front because of it uh, and because of our systems and because of how our team is but we still actively shy away from those parks so not why much. would you Are say you... why would you say that is that you shy away from the you know the infill operations because it's you know at the end of the day it's a lot of brain damage um you it's are a lot of work right it's a lot of work you're putting yeah. a lot of control into the manufacturing <laughs> plants right and they can change on a dime a lot of okay so and you know this a lot of operators that got in a lot of trouble during the COVID time is because supply issues right it's mm. it's at it was a black swan event it's not their fault but at the end of the day they were out of control they made a promise to investors and they weren't able to execute on their numbers that's where a lot of operators got in trouble during that time is because they got over ahead of themselves and i understand because the equity multiple that you get from bringing a home in is very sexy and it's very juicy but again at the end of the day we're building this company to be around for 15 years right and sometimes that means not doing what's right or what's good in the short term only but doing what's right in the long term we have turned down properties we we have thought hey we know we can probably do this but we don't like probabilities we we only buy deals that are for us we have a term and it's it's not scientific anywhere it has to be a no-brainer if it's a no-brainer buy then we buy it so that's why we shy from infills just because of that it's taking us out of control yeah that's really diligent of you to kind of stay you know stay focused on that because we we do a lot of infill and it is it's a lot of work you know there's a lot of things that can go wrong right so you got to really you know you got to really plan it so that's that's good feedback there what what mistakes have you made pasha you know thus far and uh you know that our listeners and myself can learn from i mean it's always with the city I mean, the first one that comes to mind, the, it, we bought a three-part portfolio where one of them was in, in, a, in a flood zone and a floodplain. And we went to the city and we contact them and we said, hey, you know, we plan on buying this park. We plan on expanding this park. Are you okay with it? What is needed? And they said, absolutely, no problem. You just have to get the permits. We said, great. You're going to have to probably build it on stilts. No problem. Everything seemed fine. We bought, there's one park out of the three. Um, once we got into it, once we started to apply for it, the borough in that area just attacked us viciously, mm. viciously, viciously. So even though we were going to go through the permitting process, even though we were going to do everything right, they adamantly were against us. One of the tenants were blaming us for the previous tenant who really didn't do much. I mean, they called the, the borough on us a few times when we were just really fixing all the pipes underneath the park. Um, because he just did such a hand stitch job to it. There was leaks everywhere. We really essentially had to redo all the piping and they would mm. slow us down a lot. You know, it's things like that that are outside of your control. What I will say for anyone who's listening, 
even that property inside of that portfolio, again, back to the back topic, I'm not trying to like, uh, you know, uh, raise myself up or the way we do it. Because I've been around the game long enough with my auctions and my development is if you're able to build enough uh, cushion in your pro forma, you'll be fine. Right. And we are, we're very conservative that way. So even though that park is falling behind in the portfolio of three, we're still hitting our numbers by a, and we're hitting it over our numbers by just a little bit. Right. So just be really careful. What can go wrong will go wrong. That's kind of the way I look at real estate. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's kind of how it is. Right. It's like, how, how wrong is your pro forma? Right. Like, yeah, that's that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah. What am I not seeing? Can we add a little number here, a little extra cushion here? And does it still make sense after this? Yes, it's a no brainer. All right, let's go. Let's go do it. Love it. Pasha, what are the most important things that passive investors, you know, if you were going to invest passively in another sponsor, what are the most important things that you think you would look for, you know, before investing into that mobile home park or, or that fund? Okay. Two things popped up in my mind. When I look at an LP, and I, I actively invest as an LP, I say, are are the incentives aligned exactly for each other? For example, in my next fund that we're doing, we do a European waterfall, right? So we, we barely take any fees. We take a 3% acquisition fees. We don't charge any other fees outside of that. And after the pref, it's a European waterfall where we as the GPs don't touch a dollar until the GPs are paid back 100% in full. Then we take the LPs. The LPs, yeah. Yeah. So we don't touch anything after the pref until the the LPs are paid back and they're completely de-risked in the investment. And then we start making our returns. If I look at another operator and I see that there's a, you know, 2.5 charge for here, 1% asset management, a 0.5 refi fee, a, uh, some other shit fee that I don't know what it's for. And there's this, it, what it screams to me is this, they need to buy a deal. This is how they make their money. Right. And so even though the bigger terms might be more indicative, indicative of what I'm looking for, it's just they they need to buy a deal to make rent essentially is the way I look at it. Secondly, and this is just me on a personal uh, level, I ask a lot of questions. I ask a lot of questions on the the GPs because what happens is the GPs who are very transparent and very open are always willing and happy to share all the information with you. If you catch a GP who is not willing to share all the information with you or you see that they're responding slower to you, you have to understand their mindset is that, oh man, this is becoming more work than it needs to be. Let me go on to the next one. When times get tough, like a football team, that's going to expand even more so, right? So I'm looking for the little cues up front. Um, and then obviously traction of like, what's their track history? Previous success is an indicator of post-success, in my opinion. Being in the poker world, you want to bet on the horse and the jockey, right? And if you know that they're winners, they're typically going to win. Um, and then thirdly, for passive investing, and maybe this is not the greatest way to look at it. It's probably my poker background. As I look at it as, I'm just happy to make anything, right? If it comes back, I'm, I'm happy to make anything. I look at everything as a loss, 
right? And so it's never coming back. And I've never a, yeah. a pessimistic way to look at it. The, the glass it is, is, is half empty. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, I mean, not really, because no, no, no matter what, I'm never investing amount that's going to hurt me. Mm. But it's like things can go wrong. This is the way I look at it, kind of back to the performance. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Right. So you never know what, what you don't know. Real estate's a little different. I 100% think I'm going to get returns on my real estate deals in my in my startups and the other businesses that I invest in, I'm just like, this is a flyer. It's probably never going to work out because most businesses just don't. Hey, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. You know, from like <laughs> the, the angel investors, what is it like one out of every, you know, 10 deals, you know, yeah. if they, if, if they're they winning, can hit one out of every 10 deals, their numbers still are astronomically. They're, they're crushing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pasha, what does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and why? Around that 150 to 250 lots, 2,000 models and and bigger or or later, uh, all tenant owned homes, because we don't want to own any of the utilities. That's really the the purest way. You can have on site manager. It's scaled, and you don't have to deal with any of the headaches like a bathroom or a roof collapsing or just anything. So that's the ideal scenario. And that's what we do. And, you know, the, that's how we stabilize all, all of our parks. So That's awesome. I'm curious, how did you get educated on mobile home parks originally? Was it through your partner that, that you know, did he have experience or, or how did you kind of like learn, you know? Uh, I read everything that I could. And then I just picked everybody's brains that I knew that was in it. I am such a uh, sponge for mentorship so anybody that i had connections with that were in the mobile home parks can i go visit them can i pick your brain what are you doing today uh and so i've had a lot of people help me along the way and i just ask a ton of questions because i'm just once i have my mindset on something i have to attack it i have to know everything i have to know everything more than everybody else so it's kind of this insatiable thirst that i have that's awesome. When you're looking at a market to invest in, mm-hmm. what what metrics do you look at? How do you determine, you know, if it's a, a decent market? Yeah. So you and I are very similar on this one, right? So we, I look at first population size. I am looking typically for around that fifty thousand population and above. The second metric I look for is what is the medium household income in that area, and then what are the core root anchor manufacturing businesses there is it a lot of businesses um, or is it you know anchored in by the communities uh or schooling and the healthcare system i look for real jobs real manufacturing jobs and that are going to last i look up those companies and then i also look up what's the average household price the medium household price for that and then it's really after that it's just variables right what are the crime rates what's the demographics What's the outlook of that? Do they have a community plan for that city? What's the proximity between another city? So I'm really just taking all these data points um, together and try, making the best educated uh, outcome. Really, at the end of the day, strong anchored jobs is really important. I don't need a ton of population growth because we all know that they're very non-transitory in nature. But I do need some population growth and I need good jobs that's going to stick around for a long time. Awesome. 
So obviously it's it's October 2023 right now. Interest rates are, you know, insanely high. They got here really fast. You know, how are you getting deals done right now? Are you getting deals done? What does the next 12 months look like in your eyes? Um up to this point, you know, I wish I had a I wish I could say we had some properties in escrow. Like I really do. I would love to buy in this market and in this interest rate environment. I really would. Because that means when they drop down, it's prime for a refi scenario. But you know, throughout our firm, we're, we're putting in LOIs every single week. We haven't found anything for almost six and a half months. We really haven't. And just nothing. Nothing pencils out. Only in the last month have we started to see some glimmer of hope of sellers coming back down to potentially where we need to be, but we still haven't been able to buy anything or, or get anything under contract. And that's okay. It's just the time of market. It is what it is. Um, and for the next 12 months, I can't predict the market. Some people say that there's going to be more blood in the streets. Some people say we're going to have a land, a soft landing. For us, it's very, uh, we keep our heads down and just say, does this property work? And because we're long-term holders, does this property work 10 years from now? And if it works right now in this interest environment, awesome. It's even better for us. We're even going to do a pro forma where we might have to exit with one or two points above the interest rate where it is now. Mm -hmm. um, and if it still works, it still works, right? But we just haven't found anything. We're in no rush. We have our fund set up in a way where I only raise on a per deal basis. So I don't have extra capital sitting on the sidelines forcing me to buy any deals. So I don't have any pressure. We're just on the acquisition side. We're just slow. And I think all good operators right now are are slow right now too. We're just waiting, just the, the time of the market. Yeah, I, I saw an email from a newsletter that I subscribed to, and it was talking about transaction volumes and how it's it's kind of just a deal glut right now, right? <laughs> it's just like, yeah. like nothing's really happening. I think it was something about um, like how transact, it's a deal drought. Yeah, an MHP deal drought saying how Fannie Mae uh, has reported that 2023 MHC sales are down to just 1 billion nationwide. And that's 58% lower than the first half of 2022. And that's even lower than the 1.8 billion during the first half of 2020, which was the pandemic. So uh, you're not the only one. Yeah, It's definitely, yeah. Uh, definitely a slow time right now. Tell me, Pasha, I mean, it's only been a couple of years, but do you have any deals that are behind on pro forma or, or deals that uh, are are just kind of turning out to be duds. Yeah, the the property that I told you about in Pennsylvania, you know, that one park in general, it's going to be fine, right? We were hoping to do the the thirteen park expansion, but no, we we don't. Um, I I almost wish I had a a war story, um, but going into this, especially because we're bringing on investors, the risk appetite is way lower than if it was my own parks we in the mobile home park industry i haven't had anything not hit performa in in fact we're exceeding it by a lot that's great but i think that's, that's also just because we're super conservative so there's there's a pro and con to that right the con to that is we probably could have got our hands on a lot more properties and just been just fine with those properties but again we just go for no-brainers and that's it so it's it's you know a give and take what what do you do do you do it for infrastructure you do it the right way, caps you later on to have, you know, more assets. But again, if I'm thinking, you know, we're going to be in this for 10 to 15 years, then you just got to 
kind of avoid those. So there's a pro and con and a give and take on everything. For sure. Pasha, what do you think is the biggest threat to mobile home park investing? Statewide rent control. I mean, yeah, uh, nationwide rent control for mobile home parks. There's just a lot of bad operators out there. Operators who will go and just jack up the rents by, you know, 100, 150%. We've ran into operators like that. They are just in it for the quick buck. They do not care about the tenants. They make the headlines. You know, we we had one park in escrow about a year and a half ago where they did that. We we ended up backing out of the, the deal um, just because he misunderrepresented how bad the park was. Followed up with him um, recently and about another 25% of his tenants left the park because mm. of what he did. Um, which I'm not surprised about, but you know, it's really just nationwide rent control. And, you know, Andrew, I think you're, you're one of the good ones. And I think there's a lot of good operators out there, but we like to sleep at night. I think that is the biggest problem out there. What I will say is this, I think there is an absolute lack of low income housing. And I do hope there is a solution out there because even though that we make money in the mobile home park community space, I do hope that you know, America and technology or, you know, prefabs or modular homes figures this out because there's a lot of underserved uh, Americans out there. And I will absolutely put the needs of theirs before mine. Like, you know, I'll, I'll be just fine. So. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a social side of this, right. And a lot of our investors have started asking this is like, Hey, they, you know, tell me about the social, social stewardship, you know, cause uh, those operators, like you mentioned, that just come in and raise rents and then put it up for sale and try to, you know, make a, a quick buck. Uh, they give us, you know, they give the industry a black eye. So I agree with you. You gotta, you gotta actually add value, right? You gotta, you know, clean up the community, fix the deferred maintenance and and then raise rents. And I, I've found that a lot of our residents actually appreciate, you know, the, the newer communities after they've been cleaned up and, and they're, they're fine paying a higher rate. For sure. We get a lot of outreach from our tenants. We do a lot of um, programs and community events, but they're saying they, you know, ev- no one's ever going to be ha- like ever going to be happy that you raise the rents on them. No one, no matter what. And you're going to get a lot of people who are angry at you, especially kind of given this um, income um, bracket that most of our tenants are in. But for the most part, I know they feel safer. I know that they like the lighting. I know like that they they enjoy the new uh, roads and the new staff and everything that we do to try to keep it better and kick outing all, all the bad tenants. So, you know, there are always going to be bad apples when money's involved. Totally. Pasha, thank you so much for coming on the show. If any of our listeners would like to, to get a hold of you, uh, how would you like them to do so? Yeah. Um, you can always just email me at Pasha at evocapital.net. Or if you aren't interested as an investor, we only we do only a wait list uh, for our next fund. We haven't found anything yet, but we do work off of that. You can just go to my website at www.evocapital.net. There's an investor login. Um, if you sign up there, if you're an credit investor, uh, we'll schedule a 30-minute call, just get to know you. I try to do everything face-to-face still um, and just go from there. Awesome. And before we log off, what's one last bit of advice you know that you feel is important for Uh, a passive investor to know about mobile home park investing? Really just focus on, in my opinion, I think the the greatest thing that I've discovered in commercial real estate and mobile home parks is just the velocity of capital. How fast can you de-risk your investment? 
is really something I would want you to pay attention to. Yeah. That's big. Yeah. And also the, the preservation of that capital, right? Like what's the chances of this going to zero, I think right. is, is a, a very good lens to kind of look at any investment through. So right. yeah, awesome. Pasha, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciated it. That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Would you like to see mobile home park value add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram at Passive MHP Investing for photos and awesome videos from our recent mobile home park acquisitions. Once again, that's at Passive MHP Investing on Instagram. See you there.